Hey there, I am Barb Higgins, and this is A Thousand Tiny Steps. In this podcast, I share my stories of love, loss, triumph, and tragedy as I continue to retrace my steps under what led to the death of my daughter, Molly. By doing so, I hope to not only help myself, but to bring purpose and possibility to those who listen. If you are ready to laugh, cry, shake your head in disbelief, then tie, buckle, face up, or slip on your shoes, and join me as we begin our thousand tiny steps. Hey everybody, Barb Higgins here, welcoming you to episode 128 of A Thousand Tiny Steps. A couple of weeks back, I had some Concord High students on talking about this amazing thrift shop, and the woman that does the thrift shop, Jen Spidell, is the mother to Rosie, one of my guests today. And I came to know of Rosie's current situation and the reason I invited her on today, just through a conversation with Jen and a visit a few months back. Rosie is in the sweater, and to her right, my left, is Lauren. And Rosie and Lauren both go to BU. I invited Rosie and Lauren to be on the podcast today because Rosie suffers from a condition called POTS, and I'm going to do the best I can to pronounce it. Postural orthostatic tachycardia syndrome. Oh, I did it. And essentially the autonomic nervous system glitches. And so there's a host of symptoms that happen, none of which are visible by looking at somebody, all of which really impact the body's ability to function, athletically, physically, independently. So Rosie, who are you? What do you want the world to know about you? Sure. So I'm currently a senior at BU studying mechanical engineering. I know Barb because I grew up on the same street as Gracie and Molly, and we were childhood friends. We grew up playing together a lot, along with my sister, Lucy. Lauren, tell us a little bit about you. Sure. So I'm also a senior at Boston University studying environmental analysis and policy. We live together on campus. I'm Rosie's life partner as of right now. We've been together for a little over two years at this point, and I have been along Rosie's side through her COVID and POTS diagnosis. So those two words, COVID and POTS, are words that three years ago, four years ago, nobody would have even known what those words meant or what was significant about it. So Rosie, tell us a little bit about your COVID experience and how that caused you to develop POTS? So in December of 2021, I had gotten the, I think it was a booster of the Moderna vaccine. And I am someone that for some reason had really bad reactions to Moderna specifically. I didn't realize that at the time or otherwise I would have gotten Pfizer, but I was vomiting to the point where I couldn't stop. So I was super dehydrated. And so we decided that I needed to go to the ER just because I needed fluids. So when we got there, they happened to do a COVID test. And right as we were about to leave and I was feeling better, they actually came in and they were like, oh, actually you have COVID as well. So I had just gotten the vaccine and tested positive for COVID. And that was really devastating to me because I also have asthma. So I was terrified as to what that was, what COVID would do to my lungs is what I thought. Little did I know it would do something else, (laughs) but I was able to get the monoclonal antibodies right away, which I think is probably why my lungs are okay, which is good. I'm grateful for that. But after we found out that I was positive, we figured that Lauren was also positive. You know, we're partners, we live together. So we ended up having to go to isolation housing at BU. We both got really sick, but 
I had really high fevers for a like sustained period of time, 102, 103, and was just really, really ill for like longer than they said was typically like normal. Like I was still having fevers past like the 10 or 12 day mark. So we actually had to isolate in our apartment, like pretty close to Christmas. Like we weren't, we weren't sure if we were going to be able to go home at that point, but we ended up being able to go home. And I think that was the most sick that I've ever been. My heart rate was super high the whole time, but the like nurses in the isolation, BU isolation said that they thought it was just because, you know, I was fighting off the fighting COVID and all of that, just like super bad body aches, super bad headaches, exhaustion, dizziness, lightheadedness, all that stuff. That's the worst way to be sick. I'm an asthmatic as well. And not that I enjoy asthma attacks, but if I have to choose a way to be sick, sometimes I prefer my lungs. I can cough, you know, coughing is cough and then you don't. But when you just hurt and feel sick all the time and there's nothing, no matter whether you sit or lie down or whatever, that that must have been miserable. How long did those symptoms yeah. last for you? I think that they were like, I feel like the really sick symptoms were probably around like two weeks. And then the exhaustion, the shortness of breath and the dizziness and the high heart rate just kind of didn't go away. And, you know, people had started to talk about like long COVID at that point. Right. right. So that's kind of what we were assuming. I was on winter break. So I literally just spent all of that winter break, just laying in bed, not doing anything. Like I, I would struggle to get from the couch to my bed, like going up the stairs. Right. Like it was really difficult for me, but then weeks were going by and I was feeling like I should have been feeling better. And I saw my primary care and I have a friend in high school who I knew, Emma, who has POTS. She had told me a lot about her experience. So I kind of knew a little bit about it and was starting to feel like that might be kind of what I was experiencing Yep, just based off the symptoms that I was having, just because I felt like the things that I was feeling weren't necessarily consistent with just long COVID right. because of the like super high heart rate and like the dizziness and feeling like I was going to pass out every time I stood up. And it was just not something that I had ever experienced before. Right, right. So. And the lingering, you would think if an illness is running its course, certain things should either lessen or get better. Lauren, what was your COVID experience like? Did you get super sick as well? Or So I did. I got pretty sick. I also had asthma and I was experiencing a lot of breath fatigue and exhaustion as well. I ultimately did also get the monoclonal antibodies. I would say a week or so after I came back positive with COVID. And ultimately I did have residual long COVID breathing restriction symptoms. So I was enrolled in like a long COVID clinic by my primary care and ultimately to like a breathing specialist. So I have just been kind of working through that since then. You know, it's interesting. I have elderly parents. Kenny had a kidney transplant, so his immune system is compromised all the time, so he doesn't reject the kidney. And those three humans have sailed through two or three bouts of COVID. And some of the people I know who have been decimated by COVID, there's a Concord High teacher that your mom knows, a special ed teacher. Her 22-year-old son has been in an ICU since before Christmas. His heart failed. They thought he was going to have the heart transplant. 
he died. They brought him back to life. Like it, he's been a mess and he's this healthy 22 year old. Like, and look at you too. I mean, you're young and healthy and strong and fit. Like it's just insidious sometimes. I think, I think there's so much we don't know about COVID. So both of you were, were at that time. So this was now just getting into 2022, trying to get your feet back under you, trying to, you know, classes must've started up again. You think, okay, life is going to go back to normal. Rosie, tell me, tell me what those months were like, like the going into 2022? Yeah, it was pretty difficult. I was also playing rugby for BU in the fall of 2021. So when I came back, because I had had COVID, I had to be like checked out by our athletic trainer to be cleared to play again. Yeah. And because I was having all of these symptoms, they decided that I should see a cardiologist So in that sense, I was really lucky because I was able to get in to see a cardiologist in early February, which is where I was ultimately diagnosed with POTS. Usually it takes people years to get diagnosed. Yeah, those months were definitely really difficult just with the exhaustion and like learning how to cope with having a new chronic illness and like grieving the body that I had because before I had COVID, I was as fit as I had ever been in my life. Probably I was practicing three times a week, playing games on the weekend. And then it was like overnight, I couldn't go up the stairs without having to stop midway through because I couldn't breathe. Yeah. That's got to be devastating. And athletics too, is just the whole community. You know, your teammates become your sisters and it's this whole reality, a whole way of living. Your body becomes this mechanism, this machine that I know for me anyway, as a chronic lifetime asthmatic, I loved that I could run because I felt like, oh, you know, I might have this body that's fighting me, but I win. And I don't think this is an illness that you can win. I think this is an illness that you have to invite into your life and make comfortable in your home and in your relationship because here it is. Lauren, how is all this for you? So, I mean, you were coping with your own health issues, which can't have been pleasant. And now here's the person you love the most, really facing a whole new life, which ultimately is a whole new life for you. I think I was kind of taken aback because I was kind of still under the impression that, you know, this was going to go away. It was residual from COVID. Once we got this diagnosis, I I was like, okay, like what, what does this mean, you know, for you long-term? And I think it took it took me a really long time to realize that this, you know, was not something that was going to go away. But the only thing that I really could do was, you know, comfort her while she was, you know, breathing her former self and just try to reassure her that, you know, she was doing the best that she could and that, you know, because what else can you really do? I'm not, right. you know, a medical professional. I can't really give her advice. I can only, you know encourage her to, you know, drink water, eat, you know, do take her salt, maybe do some research. But, you know, the biggest thing that I thought that I could do was just to be be there for her while she was, you know, going through this really difficult time. Ultimately, I think I was just like devastated to kind of watch her go through this, especially because, you know, she had just started rugby that previous fall and it was kind of over after one semester and she had made so many good friends. And, you know, I think it was kind of a shock for them as well, because I don't think that they really knew what that was or what that really meant for Rosie. And I don't think that they really, the team understood how severe it was. 
And I think that Rosie kind of suffered socially in that aspect as well. Oh, absolutely. You know, I'm not surprised. Yeah. You know, still it is really hard to watch her go through these things and, you know, not being able to participate in practices and games and, you know, watching her try to persevere and then kind of like figuring out that she can't necessarily all the time. And I think it is definitely hard to not want to insert my own opinion and tell her what I think she should do, but, and sometimes I still do, but I, you know, I think it was definitely hard to watch her, you know, figure all this out for herself yeah, and just try to be the best support that I can. But I think we've gotten to a really good place since then. Well, you do, you learn, you, you know, your life becomes different and, you know, there's, there are three components here. So you have the illness and just a physical recovery from the illness and all the emotions that are attached to that. Then you have the trauma of this sudden thing. That's a traumatic event, right? So trauma and all that it does is inserted into this picture. And then you have grief where you're mourning the loss of the life that you thought you might have, of, of how you were and what you thought your life, you know, your college years would be and what your relationship might look like. So you have all, all three of these things sort of vying for space inside of your heart and your head sometimes. Rosie, tell me specifically how POTS affects you. So the main things for me that like POTS affects are my heart rate is always elevated. Every time I go to any sort of doctor's appointment, it's always the person who takes my heart rate is always like, wow, your heart is very fast. And I'm like, yes, I have POTS. I know. My body has a really hard time regulating my temperature. So in the winter, I'm always freezing my fingers are and toes are always like super, super cold in the summer. The summers are really, really difficult for me. I've only had two so far that I've, you know, gone through because heat makes pots a lot worse. It's a really bad trigger. So even that has been a whole nother like beast to navigate is just figuring out how to like live in the summer. Right. Because I like being outdoors and I like doing things, but the heat just makes it like unbearable. Whenever I go from laying to sitting or sitting to standing up, my heart rate starts racing. My vision goes dark and I can't see. I feel lightheaded and dizzy. I feel like I'm going to pass out. I'm very disoriented. And this can last anywhere from like 30 seconds to a couple of minutes. And sometimes it's even delayed. So I'll stand up and I'll be okay for a minute or two, and then it will hit me all of a sudden. And that's one of the main symptoms that is really difficult for me. And that makes picking things up off the ground really hard and doing any household tasks I struggle with. Doing the dishes is really difficult for me because of the hot water. Oh, it triggers my pot. So I have to have the window open and my water bottle filled with cold water next to me. I'm going to have to take breaks and showering is really hard. We had to install like grips on the like walls of the shower for me to hold on to. And Lauren is always around when I take a shower just in case I need help getting in or out just because I feel really dizzy we've evolved a system where she knocks she bangs on the wall if she needs yeah to come help her yeah yeah so there's that and the shortness of breath is also really something that's difficult as well so like going up the stairs is really hard for me as well I get very lightheaded just because my heart rate is going so fast 
my vision, I get very like dizzy. I start to not be able to see. Yeah. So my heart rate is just really high, like all of the time. My body has difficulty regulating its temperature. So I sweat. I call it the freeze roast cycle. I go from freezing to absolutely sweating in like 30 seconds. Oh, and that's been very difficult. Yeah. So body system wise, you know, I can see why you thought a cardiologist was a good place to start because what you were noticing was this rapid heart rate, breathing and dizziness, which could indicate, but it's really neurologically based if it's your autonomic nervous system, because that controls things like temperature and heart rate. You know, it's not just exerting your body that makes heart rate go up and down. Heart rate responds to a million different things. So something in your body isn't regulating the messages. And so your heart rate goes up because nothing's telling it it doesn't need to what it sounds like. That might be oversimplifying. So this is all the time. This isn't even just certain things that you could like, you can't stop taking a shower, right? I mean, you could, you might not have very many friends. I prefer if she keeps showering. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. (laughs) So, so, so this is just every single facet of your life, like things that that you don't even think about in your day-to-day life now become tasks that require a method and a plan ahead and a partner. So that's going to be incredibly just disheartening. I know in recovering from anything, Kenny just had hernia surgery, so he can hardly move. And he, he just goes, oh, I just can't wait until I'm back to normal. And that's like a regular feeling for you, but there is no back to normal. This is normal Rosie now. So what do the doctors do for you? Now that you have the diagnosis, what's their recommendation? Is there, is there medicine? Is there physical therapy? You know, what is there? Currently, there is no FDA-approved cure or medication that's approved for POTS. There are a few medications that are used off-label to treat POTS, but because it's so specific to every person that has it, it's really difficult to find the medication that works for each person. And there's also a very limited number of doctors, specifically neurologists, who are willing to treat POTS because it's such a specialized field and it's only more recently becoming more widely researched and talked about because more people are getting it because of COVID. Right. So yeah, what I was told by the cardiologist is to dramatically increase my salt intake. So for a while I was drinking lots of Gatorade, but that just has a lot of sugar. So I've, I tried a lot of the different electrolyte pack things. There's some that are specifically made for people with POTS, but to me, a lot of them just taste like drinking ocean water that has a little bit of flavoring. Ugh, um, and I just couldn't do it. So I've started eating pickles instead. Because oh, that's a great idea. Really, and a really high insult. Yeah. Dramatically increasing your water intake helps as well as compression socks. So I definitely notice a difference when I wear my compression socks. So whenever I'm doing anything that I know is going to be more strenuous or it's going to require more energy or if I'm just having a bad day, I'll try and wear them. But I also wear them more. I've gotten more pairs so that I can wear them on more of a daily basis. But that's definitely something that's been a struggle for me as well because, you know, compression socks go all the way up to your knees. And when you wear them in the summer, everyone can see them. And like, that's been really difficult in terms of like me feeling like I'm 
like weird or people will be staring at me because they don't necessarily know when they're looking at me that like I'm wearing them because I have a disability. Right. And they think I, it's a weird fashion choice. Like what's up with her? Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. So that's been something that was really hard to cope with and be like, okay, I need to do this. And in terms of the summer, we're still trying to figure out ways to make that better. But I have a couple of cooling like towels and headbands. I also carry around instant ice packs for if there's a situation where I get really overheated and I just need to like cool down like sooner. What about your thyroid? Like thyroid involved in this at all? So much of that can be heart rate and temperature. I'm not sure. I don't think that it has to do with the thyroid. I know that there's four different subcategories of POTS. They have to do with like the different symptoms that you have. Like some people don't sweat at all. Like they have a lack of sweating, which is also dangerous versus some people have like too much sweating, which is what I feel like I have. And so I don't really know quite as much about those because I haven't been to see like a neurologist yet. But that's definitely possible. I think that there's a lot of also other chronic illnesses that go with POTS as well, especially for people who haven't gotten POTS from COVID. Like people who have EDS, Ehlers-Danlos Syndrome, often have POTS. Long COVID byproducts are neurologically based. It's not not like, oh, you have cold forever. It's all neurological. I'm going to ask like a comparison scenario. So prior COVID, let's say summer 2021, you know, going back to school, rugby and all that. It's Saturday night. What's a typical Saturday night for Rosie and Lauren prior to all of this or a typical Tuesday afternoon? Like I'm thinking like socially, like things you would go and do. We like to do a lot of like outdoor activities. We would do like a lot of hiking, biking, like going and walking outside. And if there were any sort of like festivals going on or anything like that, there's a lot of like markets and stuff in Boston, especially in the summer. So we would often go on like longer walks because we don't have a car. And sometimes Boston public transportation is very (laughs) unreliable. So we would go walk a lot of places yeah. and have the stamina to do that. So now how is your life different now? I would say that like we can do one activity in a day, but after that, like I'm, especially in the summer, I'm pretty much done or I need to go inside where there's air conditioning and like take a break. When we do stand events, we kind of map out the area beforehand and we say like okay here's somewhere that's indoors air conditioning we can stop there like halfway through the day in order to cool down like get some water things like that being able to find shade quickly is also another thing we've had to kind of adapt to do yeah I would say I would say we're still able to do a lot of those outdoorsy things I do think that though I kind of have to let Rosie lead the way in terms of speed or pace. Sometimes I catch myself walking too fast. Yeah. She's like, hey, can you like, can you slow down? I'm like, oh, like, of course. So I think that's another, like, we still do those things, but we do have had to adapt how we do them yeah. and when we do them. So going like for hikes in, you know, when it's a bit cooler outside and in areas where it's cooler. And I think a lot of times too now we'll pay a little bit more to Uber places versus walking walking 
just because like it's more worth it to me now because I'm like I I can't really do that walk or it it's or the walk becomes what you do so if you're yes you want to do an event then you drive to the event so the event is what you do yeah boy I get it I get it that's an intense way to live at your age I mean it's an intense way to live at any age but you know you guys are what 22 21 22 22 yeah you shouldn't even be thinking about these things you know yeah I would say the other big change for me is I pretty much don't drink like ever. I just can't because when I drink alcohol, it makes my symptoms worse. It's like having like the worst hangover for like three days afterwards. So like my symptoms are like really, really bad. Like I get like digestive issues for like several days afterwards. I just feel so bad to the point where I like don't even want to drink. Yeah. And I had pots when I turned 21. So like I couldn't even really go out and yeah, and have people bet you money things. for drinks, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Go to Disney and drink around the world and Epcot because you'll get to Germany and that's it. You know, that's only like the third the third country in. Oh so there are nice. some occasions where like I will if we want to go out and do something, I will drink but I'll have like two drinks and I'll plan like we'll probably go out a Friday night and then I'll plan to just recover for the entire weekend like we'll plan to not do anything and I'll probably not do anything that Monday either that's a bummer I mean not that we all need to get drunk but it's just one one more thing that you can't you can't just enjoy and do like a rite of passage one of the ways I actually thought to ask your mother what was going on with you was I saw online on social media your mission to get a service dog, which is not an inexpensive task. Tell me how you came to see that this could be a supportive option for you and how a service dog would help you. Originally, I had been doing some research years ago into a service dog for my sister, Lucy, because she has type one diabetes and there's service dogs that do, they can detect when your blood sugar goes low or high, stuff like that. I had done a lot of research and into service dogs and always just been very involved in the disabled community because of my prior chronic illnesses and also mainly my sister being an advocate for her and everything like that. So I knew a bit about service dogs. I, I had seen on social media more recently that there were people with POTS that had mobility service dogs. Once I had that second appointment where they were like, your numbers are worse. And with the cardiologist, there's not a whole lot that we can do for you. And we don't think that this is necessarily going to go away. That's kind of when I started to look into it. I think a big part of me was kind of worried, or I think part of me was a little bit hesitant because POTS is such a invisible disability that I would face a lot of backlash and judgment because A lot of people don't necessarily know that I have POTS just by like looking at me and it's not something that I necessarily like go around telling every single person I meet. Right. And it's hard for people who don't spend every day, like even my extended family, for them to understand how significantly this impacts my life because they, you know, they don't see my day-to-day life. Right. And like I can tell them, but that's not necessarily the same. No, no. So I was a little bit worried at first about how 
other people might perceive it, but I ultimately made the decision to apply to several different agencies because I had read some stories of other people who had POTS and who had gotten service dogs and just how life-changing having that service dog was for them and also just how much independence they were able to take back just because Lauren is like my primary, I guess, caregiver, you would say. And while she's more than happy to do that, I do feel sometimes there is that like burden of that caregiving put on her. It's exhausting. It is. And it's also anxiety provoking for when we're not together and I'm alone and I worry and she worries like, what if I were to pass out and no one knows what's wrong? I struggle with so much, especially like in public or just like when I'm not home with Lauren. And I think also just having that service dog also gives a little bit of visibility to invisible condition. And it allows people to kind of see and understand more. And while that's not the way that it should be, it, it is it's the reality course. now though. Yeah. Yeah. So what comes to mind for me was, you know, you're in the shower and you're starting to feel uneasy. So you knock on the, you knock on the wall and Lauren knows to come. So now you, Lauren's not there or Lauren's in the middle of something and you knock on the wall and there's your service dog right there to offer the support you need. So even when you're not alone, I think it, it creates space in the relationship where you both can take a break. You're not worried about Lauren. Lauren's not worried about you. You have the reality still, none of that changes, but that service dog is there all the time to provide that. It's almost like a cushion for you. So what's the process to get one? Do you have to be approved? Do you have to apply? I applied to a few different organizations. It's difficult because POTS is still pretty specific in terms of a service dog. There's a lot of different programs that do like very specialized ones. There's dogs for people who are blind and people who have seizures and diabetics and stuff like that. But when it comes to mobility dogs, it's a little bit more difficult to find organizations that do your specific condition. Right. So I did, I applied to, I think five or six, didn't hear back from a few, got rejected from, I think two. And then I got accepted from ECAD. Um, It's educating canines assisting with disabilities. And they train service dogs for multiple different programs. They have a program for people who were, who are veterans. They have a program for children with autism. They have a program for people with mobility issues, and they have a program where the dogs become facility dogs. So they go to hospitals. I applied to them. I did like an initial form, found out that they had accepted me. And then I had to fill out this like very detailed application, which took me a couple of months to get everything together. I needed like a doctor's letter, a prescription, several personal letters of reference, a professional letter of reference, just a lot of things. And this was before, like they accepted you to, they invited you to like apply. This wasn't like a formal program. So this was all prior to knowing whether or not they would take you on as a client. Yeah. Um, so that's so, stress producing. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, definitely. 
so we got all of that submitted and then I was invited to interview with them. So that was an in-person interview in Connecticut, Torrington, Connecticut. We rented a zip car in the early fall and drove down to Connecticut and did the in-person interview. We got to see the facility, meet some of the dogs, meet the staff. And that is when I found out that day that I, that they accepted me. That must've been a, a good drive home. Like what relief. It definitely was. Yeah. But it's definitely a big decision because you have to submit a $500 deposit at some point to hold your spot. And then there is a $25,000 fundraising commitment for the dog. However, that is still a reduced price for a service dog of this level, just because the total cost of raising a service dog that has this level of training and skills and tasks and everything is anywhere from fifty dollars to $75,000 from the breeding, the whelping, the paying, trainers. paying the trainers, all the training. All, all it, yeah. The dogs are about two and a half to three years old by the time they're ready to graduate. They're pretty old. All the vet fees are like covered. They're spayed and neutered and all of that yeah. yep. by the time that you get them. So that's what I'm currently working on is the fundraising of that money because I do not have $25,000. Oh no, that's a lot. So what's coming to mind for me right now. So I have a lot of former runners that are, you know, you used to have to qualify to run the Boston Marathon. Now you can sign up for nonprofit teams and run the marathon. You have to raise a certain amount of money for the nonprofits. And I just feel like this would be such a good Boston Marathon nonprofit. My goodness. Just because, you know, it's not just you. Service dogs are pervasive. Are you essentially asking for donations? Yeah, kind of a little bit of everything. Right now I'm, you know, in school still trying to finish up my degree. So while I have been doing some like fundraising efforts, I haven't been like solely focusing on that. I think I'm going to start planning more dedicated events once I am have a little bit more free time. And I do have some events like in the works that I've been planning. I do have a website, a campaign page that people can go to to donate directly. They can also send a check directly to ECAD, which is helpful because you don't, ECAD doesn't have to pay the fees, like the processing fees for like the credit card or whatever. Do you have like the time frame that you have to get this money by or? Not necessarily. It can take as long as you need it to take, but it'll take about two years for me to get the dog once I meet the fundraising commitment. Right. So just yeah. because of the wait list and yes, how long yes. it takes to train them could be a little bit less, could be like more like a year, depending on what they have for dogs and yeah. what they have. Well, a dog is like, a good match for you. My yeah, exactly. first husband, Eric, his sister was blind. And so she's gone, you know, she's on her probably fourth dog now. She's had guide dogs forever. But you know, you go and you she would go and spend like a month at this facility to get to know the dog like living like in a dormitory mm -hmm. setting and you spend this time together. And one of the times she spent a couple of weeks with a dog and it just was not going to work. You know, so she had to sort of start over and that can seem overwhelming. But when you think about the relationship you'll have with this dog and whatever dogs follow years down the road, it's not like you get qualified and a pooch shows up at your door, you know, with a little note. 
No, it's much more than that. Wow. So how long have you been fundraising now? Since like mid-November. Yeah, it hasn't been too, too long. Once they tell me that they have a dog or that they have dogs that they think would be potential good matches for me, we will go to team training, which is similar to what you were saying. Yeah. We'll both of us will go and stay at their facility for two weeks to learn all the different commands and tasks and things like that. There's a lot of different things that the dog will specifically do for me. When we went for the interview, they had me work with a couple of dogs and kind of asked like what tasks I think would benefit me the most. The counterbalancing is the biggest one. Yeah. And definitely things up off the ground being able to retrieve like water and medications. There's also deep pressure therapy, which is really helpful for people with POTS because the dog is able to like lay on your legs and that forces the blood to flow back and towards your heart, which is really helpful. They're also able to alert you to an episode prior to it happening. The example you gave where you stand up and you're fine for a bit. So you think, okay, not today. And then out of nowhere, but the dog would be able to sense it and would come yeah. to you and also when it happens, you've got the support. Wow. Yeah. And also just being able to guide me to like a safe location when I yes. stand up and I can't see, like that's one of the biggest ones. So we'll be able to learn how to do all of that. And yes. also what like Lauren's role will be in caring for the dog and all of that. And then yeah. there'll be a little graduation ceremony and then yeah, we'll be a team. Yay. Wow. Well, my heart's in my throat, Rosie. <laughs> this is this is just such a pervasive, you know, you don't want to have any illness, but you have an invisible thing. You look just fine. And you're just not, you know, in terms of all of these things that you have to live with. When I look at things that we go through in life, and this is, you know, 60-year-old me talking now with, you know, job loss and child loss and brain tumors and kidney transplant husband and, you know, all the things I've gone through that you know, could leave me, you know, drunk on the couch all day, right? I had those days. I always end up turning around and finding things that I've learned or people that I've met that blow me away. And I think, okay, I'm not happy that this happened, but I love that I've met this person, right? And so I look at the whole reality of service animals and guide dogs and into advocacy, which before we were recording, we were all talking about being an advocate for others when when they can't advocate for themselves. And I'm going to go on ECAD and check it out just because the whole thing fascinates me. And as I said before, we've, the Molly B Foundation has provided support for children with autism to have service animals because it's, it allows them sometimes to be able to go to school and all that. So I look forward to this for you guys. You know, I just think it will be eye-opening and life expanding. How are your families about it? I think it was definitely a little bit of a surprise for my family and especially like my grandparents and my other side of my family, it's an invisible disability. And when you think of me as I was before COVID, it's like, why would she need a service dog? Yeah. So I think that that's been difficult. And I think my mom had a really hard time kind of understanding how significantly POTS was impacting my life on a day-to-day basis until I really sat down and explained it to her in a very thorough way because we're very good. Lauren and I are very good at our routine at this point. We don't make a big deal of it. When I stand up, she knows that 
she's always there to like support me. Like it's not like there's any big dramatic event that right, happens. Right. Or so someone watching would be like, you seem fine. Yeah. Right. But they don't see all of those moments where I'm not fine or where I can't do things that I used to be able to do. Right. So I think it was really difficult for my family, especially because I live in Boston and I only really see them on the holidays and stuff like that. So I think that was a bit of a hard adjustment for them to kind of understand. But once I kind of explained it more to like my mama and Pepe, they have been very supportive and some of my like biggest advocates and reposting it on their face on my mommy's Facebook all the time. Yeah. And I think it's just hard because it's not the way that they want to think of me and no one wants to think of their grandchild. They have to let go. Yeah. They have to let go of all their preconceived notions too. Lauren, how's your family dealt with it? I mean, I know they're not nearby, but they're your family and Rosie's your family. Have they been supportive? I think so. Yeah. I think they definitely had some questions as well, but I think you know, when I kind of sat down with them one-on-one and talked to them about it, they're, you know, pretty open and understanding. You know, they're obviously concerned for Rosie because they care about her a lot. And also maybe don't know that much about the condition and like, I'm not necessarily an expert on it either. So it's, I think it can definitely be a little bit hard to explain, especially to people that, you know, my parents aren't medical professionals. Right. So I think especially when they don't necessarily see it firsthand either. But I think that, you know, through explaining it, they can be sympathetic. But I think it definitely takes, you know, seeing Rosie at those, you know, lows to be empathetic and really be passionate about doing this for her, being an advocate for her. Because, you know, like I said, I've known Rosie with POTS longer than without. And that's not the same for her family. So... Right. Um, they have a whole lifetime. Of, yeah. Right. They, you know, watched her grow up with without this condition. And, you know, for her for this to sudden, suddenly have happened. And especially since Rosie doesn't live at home anymore, I think it was definitely an adjustment. And having to explain this condition to someone is a lot different than being able to see these events happen, especially when, you know, you get good at kind of not making a big deal about it. Right. She is okay as long as she's not you know, passing out and hitting um, my head or something. Yeah, right. I did pass out. Like I'm okay. Like as long as I didn't hit my head, like, well, yeah, that's, that's just it. it. You know, you, it's not the passing out that's dangerous. It's that you fall down. And if you're near a big yeah. pop or subway mm-hmm. trains going by and you're on the platform, you know, these are bad things, right? Those things become very real possibilities all the time. now. Yeah. I think it's also hard too. Cause I know some people also just get dizzy when they stand up sometimes. So oh, me, I think lot. for some time, for some people, it's like, oh yeah, like I get dizzy when I stand up and it's like, oh, no, it's not. no, but like, it's a little bit different than that. Right. Like, it's, And you get undizzy very quickly and I don't. Yeah. Like, I was reading some studies that have been done and there was one that said that your quality of life when living with POTS has been compared to living with COPD and congestive heart failure. Right. So like right. it's it's significant. Right. That's a really accurate description or, or comparison because those are things that affect all of the basic fundamental movements that go into every activity you do. In your normal day, in every single one of those things causes a reaction for you. Well, listen, this is heartbreaking and inspiring at the same time. What's inspiring to me is that you guys obviously have a really special connection 
in relationship because you're Lauren, you're willing to help. And Rosie, you're willing to allow her to help. That isn't always the Sometimes. case. Sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Know, she has gotten really good at learning how to ask for help, especially yeah. previously before POTS. I think she was definitely someone that had a really hard time asking people for help and definitely. Yeah, yeah I could was, see that. Yeah. Yeah. I'll do it yeah. myself. That, I'll do it myself. That has been something that was, yeah, has been really difficult just changing how I see myself and my idea of my body and the way that I function and everything and just learning that I can ask for help and everything. And, you know, Lauren has been my biggest support and cheerleader. And there's been so many moments where whether I was angry or grieving or accepting about it, I just couldn't have like done it without her. So like, I'm very grateful to have had a partner that was willing to stick through all of this with me. And I'm very lucky as well. Again, what, what comes to mind for me is how beautifully you two are handling this and managing it. And that, that says a lot for you guys as human beings. It also says a lot for your cognitive awareness and your cultural awareness around people and differences and, and how, you know, there isn't a set path for life, right? So tell me the name of your fundraising page. It will all be in the show notes. My Instagram is just at rosie.felicia. The link to my campaign page for ECAD is in my bio for that. You can also find me on Facebook at Rosie Spidel. Um, I also have a pinned post on my Facebook page that describes a little bit more detail of my story. And it also has a link to my campaign page, as well as ECAD's page, if you want to learn more information about ECAD as a organization. I would also recommend Dysautonomia International, really big organization that fundraises a lot and is a very big advocate of POTS research. If there was one thing you wanted people to know, or one thing you wished more people knew, or one thing about your experience that stands out for you, what would that be? I think I would want people to know that there are a lot of people out there that have invisible disabilities. And when someone tells you that they have a disability, they do. There's no reason that someone would lie about having a disability. It's not fun. It's not cute. It's not a good time. Right. So just validating that experience and believing and supporting that person, I think is the most important thing that you can do. Right. I think this whole experience has kind of been a yes and kind of a thing where I like, okay, you have this condition, like we're going to take that and go and stride with it and, you know, kind of come into the opportunity with, I honestly think of it kind of as like, an opportunity, not in the sense that I'm glad that, you know, she got this condition or anything like that, but it is, I think, an opportunity for both of us to have grown and we've kind of had to like mature and grow and accept this condition as it is. And I think just taking it in stride and just being advocates for, you know, Rosie and for everyone that has POTS right. as well, I think it has kind of taught us as well to be really adaptable. And I think that, you know, through this whole experience, I've kind of learned that anything can happen and you kind of have to either learn how to adapt or kind of be stuck. And I think that that has really been like the key to this whole process. 
because time is going to pass whether or not you are, you know, (laughs) that's just it. Taking advantage of it or not. Yeah. It is pretty good stuff. We can crawl up, crawl in a hole and feel terrible, or we can figure it out and and move along and carry it with us. So I sometimes talk about my grief as a blanket. And when I'm having a bad day, it's a wet, smelly blanket that a dog has peed on and there's mud on and, and it won't fold up and I have to carry it. And then some days it's all folded up and it has a handle and I can wear it on my shoulder, but it's with me no matter what. And I imagine that an illness like this is the same way. You have your folded blanket days and your smelly wet blanket days. And the bottom line is the blanket's here to stay. And so it seems like you guys have become masterful at managing the blanket. (laughs) So, you know, that will make whatever challenges are ahead more manageable. Well, I want to thank you guys a lot for being willing to come talk about it. I want to thank everyone for listening. I want to thank Rosie and Lauren for coming on today. As always, be good to yourself. Be good to yourself first. When you're done being good to yourself, be good to someone else. And as always, have a good day, everybody. Hey, thanks for listening and supporting the podcast. Feel free to leave a review and share my stories with your friends. Please reach out with your own stories as I love connecting with my listeners. If you would like to get to know Molly, head over to mollybfoundation.org to see what she is all about. If you want to see what I'm up to next, you can find me on Instagram at barb underscore 444, on Facebook as Barb Higgins, and at my website, a thousandtinysteps.com. And while you're there, sign up for my newsletter, a weekly way to find out what's up in the life of Barb Higgins.